0: The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. Well, good morning. Yeah, I was keenly aware of the fact that I was, am the first general session speaker at this conference without a really cool English accent. Um, and it's hardly fair. I mean, our previous two speakers could read their grocery list and it would sound compelling. <clears throat> I thought about faking an accent this morning, but I wouldn't know how. So, uh, but I do have two things that our two previous general session speakers have, and that is Jesus Christ and His Word. And I'm happy to minister Christ and minister his word to you all uh, this, this morning. There's so much power in this room. I know you're here uh, because you want help and encouragement in your walk with the Lord. And you're also here to be equipped to bring help to other people. So your presence here says a lot about you. And uh, I honor you for being here, and I'm incredibly blessed beyond words to be your servant uh, in this, this session. There have been so many helpful topics that have been covered and covered wonderfully over the past uh, few days. Uh, for this session, I'd like to talk to you about the narrow subject of confessing sins. Uh, both confessing sins to God and others. And there are some notes for you to follow to help you in following along uh, this morning. And my aim in this session is to give perspective to Christians who have sinned in any area, including the areas that we have been learning about at this conference. Uh, How many of you find yourself at times having sins that you need to confess to God? All right, good. So this will be practical. Um, how many of you would give yourself an A-plus in the area of confessing sin? You're just nailing it. All right, okay, good. So this is needed then. We all can do better, right? The truth is that confessing sin does not come naturally to any of us. Confessing the sins of other people comes very naturally to us, but not confessing our own sins to God and even to others. Sometimes we are afraid to confess our sins because we're afraid to look at our sins and to face them squarely. We're afraid of what we might see. Sometimes we don't bother confessing our sin because we've already confessed that sin a thousand times, so why bother doing so again, we think. Sometimes we think, I'll just start performing better and that will make up for my past failures. And so we try to redouble our efforts and live better without tending to the past sin and confessing those past sins to God. Sometimes we confess our sins, but we don't confess them as sin. We use other words that make our sins sound more understandable or put ourselves in a more sympathetic light. Sometimes we confess our sins, but if, you, if someone were to print out your confession of sin to God or maybe your confession of sin to someone that you have wronged, if someone were to print out the transcript of your confession they would notice that you spent more time confessing excuses than you did confessing sin. That you spent more time blaming other people or blaming your circumstances and shifting blame than you actually spent confessing sin. The effects of this can be devastating. A number of years ago, a woman in our church was uh, doing yard work in her backyard and at one point she peeked in through the glass slider to check in on her children and as she did so to her horror she saw her four-year-old son standing in front of their television watching pornography her four-year-old son She was absolutely mortified, and she rushed into the house and stopped the VCR and pulled out the video and said to her son frantically, where did you get this? And the child said, I found it under dad's workbench in the garage. Well, she confronted her husband when he got home, and that confrontation did not go well at all. She then called me and pleaded with me to come over to their house right away, and so I did, and when I arrived at the house, we sat down at their dining room table, her and the husband and me, and I looked at this husband, and I said, what is going on? And I expected a confession of sin. Instead, he took a deep breath And then he launched into a 20-minute rehearsed speech about all the ways that his wife had been failing him in their marriage and how her failures contributed to his sin. He essentially shifted about 90% of the blame for his sin onto his wife. And one of my biggest regrets as a pastor over the last 25 years is that I let this guy go on and on for as long as he did. Their marriage did not survive the year. My point is that there are ways to go wrong when it comes to confessing our sins to God and to others, which can render our confession meaningless or even devastating. And there are also right ways to think and behave when it comes to confessing our sins, ways that lead to joy. And that's what I want to focus on in this session. To all Christians who have sinned, I, I would say this, that the truest measure of a Christian and that Christian's character is not really determined by whether or not they fall, but by what they do after they fall, right? Proverbs 24 16, Solomon says, the righteous man never falls. Right? No, the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. And the first step to rising again and walking in victory on the other side of your sin is confessing your sins to God and experiencing the grace of God in forgiving you of those sins and bringing pardon to your conscience. If you skip this step of confession and you try to walk in victory with an unpardoned conscience, you will never succeed in walking in victory over sin. As William Romaine says, no sin can be crucified either in heart or life unless it first be pardoned in conscience. If it be not mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. That's so true. In fact, this is why many times we keep recommitting the very sins that we feel the most guilty about. Because as long as we're bound by the guilt of past sins those sins that we've committed still have power over us. But here's the promise. In 1 John 1, 9, John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And guys, when that forgiveness, when that cleansing is experienced, the power of those past sins that we've committed is broken. And it is confession that triggers this deliverance. So if it is true that confession is the first step of victory, and if it's true that confession triggers the divine response in bringing pardon to our conscience, then all of us should be thinking, I want to become good at the discipline of confessing my sins to God and to others. And that's where Paul's confessions in the second half of Romans 7 can help us this morning. What I want to do is read to you from Romans 7, beginning in verse 14, all the way through the first half of verse 25. And you should have these in your notes. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am in possession of a sinful flesh that is sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me." For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and seeking to make me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of God, and may God help us to understand his words this morning. Romans 7 15 through 25, that I just read to you, is, I think, the most thorough example of confession of sin that we find anywhere in Scripture. We find confessions of sin elsewhere. In the Bible, but I don't think we find anything approaching the thoroughgoing and unrelenting personal inspection and depth of confession that we find here. I know there's debate about whether Paul is speaking in these verses from the vantage point of a regenerate man. In these verses, I'm of the opinion that Paul is speaking as a mature believer as he writes these words in the present tense. And I think a strong textual case can be made for that. But the truth is, you don't even have to agree with me on this point. Regardless of what you believe, you have to admit that Paul, in these verses, demonstrates a maturity that many of our confessions lack. In fact, this passage puts a lot of my own confessions of sin to shame. Every person should read what Paul says in these verses and say, Oh God, please make me like the speaker in these verses and make me a better confessor of my sin. We should respond this way because there's some great lessons here to learn about confession that we can draw from the example of Paul that he sets in this passage. And I just want to try to take time to cover six of these lessons. That's how we'll frame this. Six lessons about confession of sin that we can learn from Paul's example here in these verses. Lesson number one. And this is a great lesson. We learn from what Paul does here in the second half of Romans 7. Just before he gets to Romans 8 that the path to a deeper experience of gospel grace comes through a maturing honesty in searching out and confessing our sins. The location of the confessions of Romans 7 in the book of Romans is instructive for us. These confessions come right before Romans 8, which is one of the most exuberant and triumphant chapters in all of the Bible. Romans 8 begins with Paul saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the chapter ends with Paul boasting that nothing can separate him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus his Lord. And there's a whole lot of wonderful stuff in between. You know the chapter. The wonderful declarations of Romans 8 caused many Christians to make Romans 8 their favorite chapter in the Bible, and that's a great thing. But when you read Romans 8 and see and feel the energy and the joy, the exuberance of many of the verses in Romans 8, you should be asking the question, where did Paul just come from that would cause him to come springing into chapter 8 with such joy and worship? Where Paul is coming from is the depths of confessing his sin in the second half of Romans 7. It should instruct us that Paul feels the need to go into the depths of confessing his sins and that he feels the need to take us, the readers, there before he takes us into the glories and the grace of Romans 8. Honestly, if Paul would have left out the confessions of Romans 7, 15 through 25, or even all of Romans 7 for that matter, I don't know that any of us would have noticed that anything was missing from the book of Romans. We would have happily gone from the last verse of Romans 6 into the first verse of Romans 8. But Paul, Paul does not let us do that. Paul's trying to instruct us here He's saying to us, if you want to go with me into Romans 8 and really understand and appreciate the gospel truths that I am about to give you, you must first come with me into the depths of contemplating sin and being honest and forthright about your sin. Paul would say, I'm showing you the right way to get the most out of what I'm about to say in Romans 8. The glories of Romans 8 are best enjoyed by Christians who confess their sins the way Paul is confessing his sins in the second half of Romans 7. You'll note that Paul's confession of sin in Romans 7 is tedious, even repetitious. He confesses his sin, and we think, okay, that's thorough enough. We get your point, Paul. Let's move on to Romans 8. But then Paul repeats himself, and he says almost the same thing again. And I think he does so partly in order to slow us down and to get us comfortable with the rhythm of what he's doing as he searches out and confesses his sin. Paul does this because he knows that we will never feel the glory of Romans 8 if we do not feel the groanings of Romans 7. And begin to join him in confessing sin the way he does in these verses. So I challenge you all: confess your sins, knowing that the path to a deeper experience of gospel grace comes through a maturing honesty and searching out and confessing your sins to God and to others. You might say, "Okay, I get that." I. I understand this lesson. I would like to be a better confessor of my sin so that I can enter more deeply into the experience of the glories of the gospel. But where do I get the courage to face my sins so squarely as Paul does in Romans 7? With the kind of unflinching honesty that Paul exhibits in these verses in Romans 7. You say, man, I... I want the courage to do that because that doesn't come naturally to me. That leads us to the second lesson that we can learn from what Paul is doing in the second half of Romans 7, and it's actually the converse of lesson one. Lesson two is it is the experience of gospel grace that gives us the courage to be more honest in searching out and confessing our sins. Where do we get the courage to face and confess our sins? We get it from the grace of the gospel. Notice the context in which Paul is going this deep in searching out and confessing his sins. We don't have time to review everything, but in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul is talking about justification, and he says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our entry by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we are exalting, verse 2, we are exalting, verse 3, we are exalting, verse 11. Paul also talks about how the love of God is being poured out in his heart through the Holy Spirit who was given to him in verse 5. Coming into Romans 6, Paul tells us, That we are freed from sin, verse 7. Freed from sin, verse 18. Freed from sin, verse 22. He asserts this again and again. In Romans 7, he talks about how we are joined to Christ in marriage in a way that now enables us to bear fruit for God. And guys, it's in the very context of relishing these gospel realities that Paul now goes to this level of introspection and confession in the second half of Romans 7 as he talks about his sins. What we see demonstrated here is the fact that a deep awareness of gospel truth and grace does not cause us to turn a blind eye to our sins. It's actually the very thing that gives us the courage to face our sins. Paul would say the reason that I can be so gut-level honest in confessing my sin here in Romans 7 is because I know that I'm justified. I know that no matter what I find, no matter what surfaces, no matter what I have to confess, I am righteous before God. I am under grace. I am loved by a God who already knows the worst about me. And I know that I am safe. With him. That's where he gets his courage from. My younger brother is a pastor on the East Coast of the United States, and a number of years ago he disciplined his five year old son. And after the discipline was administered, my brother sat his son on his lap in order to give his son a chance to cry it out while my brother held him and hugged him and prayed silently for his son. Eventually, my brother could hear and feel that his son's crying had subsided. But then all of a sudden, my brother felt his five-year-old son's body heave Again, as another wave of weeping swept over him. My brother knew that this fresh wave of crying was not because of the discipline, so he said to his son, Asher, why are you crying? And his son replied, Because, Dad, I was born the wrong kind of boy, and I'm always doing wrong. What a gospel moment. My brother hugged his son all the more tightly and said to him, You know what, Asher? You were born the wrong kind of boy. And so was your dad. And that's why we both need Jesus. Think about that picture for a moment. My brother's son comes to a stunningly sad realization about himself. And amazingly, he had the courage to face it and voice it out loud. Where did that courage come from? At least in part, it came from the fact, I think, that he was sitting on his father's lap, secure in his dad's embrace. And I want you to keep that image in your mind and realize that that's exactly where Paul is seated as he confesses his sins and voices the self-discoveries that he expresses in the second half of Romans 7. Paul is sitting on his heavenly father's lap, wrapped in his father's embrace as a justified one, and it is in that safe context that Paul can be so bold in facing and confessing his sins with such honesty. And that's the location, if you're a believer in Jesus... That's the location where you confess your sins to. Do you believe that? People, Christians often don't believe this as they should. Please realize, guys, that when you have sinned as a Christian, you don't need to confess your sins in order to regain your Heavenly Father's embrace. You never lost his embrace of you. You may have let him go, but he did not let you go. And it is wrapped in his embrace, wrapped in his good graces as a justified one, that you can now confess the worst of your sins, knowing that you're safe in his love. Guys, if we really know this to be true, it would make us bold and courageous repenters. Amen? We will know that we're now free to repent deeply and to repent boldly because we're secure in Christ. We would know that repentance is not some necessary evil. Repentance is a sweet and a beautiful thing. It's a delicious thing that we now get to do now that we are saved and wrapped in the embrace of our Heavenly Father. And this repentance happens most richly and most boldly when we are confident and secure in the grace of God. That's lesson number two. You say, okay, I get that the gospel gives me courage to confess, but how should I confess? That leads us to the third lesson about confession that we learn from Paul's example in Romans 7, which is one of the most basic lessons of all, but we'll take a little bit of time with this. And that is number three, our confessions of sin should feature a heavy use Of the biblical vocabulary of sin. Our confessions of sin should feature a heavy use of the biblical language of sin. Notice the terminology Paul uses to speak of his sins. Verse 17, sin. Verse 19, evil. Verse 20, sin. Verse 21, evil. Verse 23, sin. Verse 25, sin. That is uncompromisingly biblical language that Paul is using here to describe his failings. This is instructive for us. We live in a day in which the biblical language of sin has been replaced with more modern terminology. And even in the church, we're all too happy to use the new terms. It's easier to confess, for some reason, to codependency than it is to confess to idolatry. It's easier to confess to an affair than it is to adultery. It's easier to confess to sexual addiction than to deliberate fornication. It's easier to confess to being stressed than it is to confess to pride and unbelief in God. It's easier to confess to being in a bad mood than it is to confess to being discontent and bitter. It's easier to confess to making a mistake than it is to confess to having sinned. It's easier to go to a brother and say, Hey, I'm struggling in my thought life. Can you help me? It's harder. To say, hey, I've been committing adultery with my heart and with my eyes and defiling my marriage bed by looking with lust at pornography on the internet. Could you help me? I challenge you all to be students of Scripture and embrace the terminology of Scripture in describing your sin. And of all words, use the word sin And confess your sins as being against God and against others. God's grace will come alive to you. And will be vivid to you in direct proportion to the degree in which the vocabulary of your confessions are biblical. So use the biblical language. This is not in your notes, but along these lines, we have to note that... Paul, in this passage, uses the biblical vocabulary of sin, not just when he talks about his actions, but also when he speaks about his deeply rooted sinful desires that are deeply woven into the fabric of his physicality. In these verses, Paul confesses to a contradiction that he observes within himself, a contradiction between the law of God and his deeply rooted desires. Paul sees that the law says one thing and he also observes that he has deeply rooted desires in the members of his body that want to do the opposite of what God's law says. And you know what Paul does? Amazingly, in verse 16, he voices agreement with the law. Confessing that the law is good. And in verses 17 and 20, he calls his deeply rooted contrary desires sin. Imagine that. Paul is literally choosing to side with the law against his deeply rooted contrary desires. Pronouncing the law good, calling his contrary desires sin. And that's true courage. Courage is not coming out of the closet and saying, I have indwelling desires that are contrary to the law of God, and I want the world to know that I have concluded that my contrary desires are okay after all. I've decided to agree with myself against the law of God. That's not true courage. True courage is being willing to publicly announce your agreement with God's law against your deeply rooted contrary desires true courage is being willing to call the law good and to call sin sin even when that sin is woven deeply into the very fabric of your physicality this segues us into the next lesson that we can learn about confession from the second half of Romans 7, and the lesson is this, that healthy confession involves confessing sin as coming from within ourselves. Healthy confession involves confessing sin as coming from within ourselves. You see, guys, when a person comes to a place of seeing that they've actually sinned, the work still isn't done. They can go in several directions at this point. And we've all done this. They can say, Yes, I've sinned, but then point outside of themselves to their circumstances and blame their circumstances. Or they can say, Yes, I have sinned, and then point to people, their spouse, for example. And say, that is the entire cause, or at least a partial cause, of my sin. Amazingly, Paul never once, in these verses, you can read through them a hundred times, you'll notice Paul never once looks outward in trying to evaluate where his sin comes from. That's remarkable. He only looks inward. In verse 17, Paul speaks of sin which indwells me. In verse 18, he speaks of his flesh at work in him. In verse 20, he speaks of sin which dwells in me. In verse 15, he says, I do not understand. I don't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. But then he goes on a searching expedition to figure out why he did what he did in sinning. And in verse 21, he says, I find I find then the principle that evil is present in me. Verse 23, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and seeking to make me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Again and again, we see Paul only looking inside himself to explain where his sin is coming from. He never points the finger outside of himself. I'm sure that many of the sins that Paul is confessing to in these verses were relational sins. No one lived a more relational life than the Apostle Paul. People wronged him in countless ways, creating plenty of provocations for him to sin. People disrespected him as an apostle. The Corinthians did not support him financially like they Should have. They criticized his physical presence as unimpressive. They called his sermons contemptible. I can't imagine dealing with that. If people came up to me on a Sunday morning and said that was contemptible. But Paul heard that. It seemed that the more abundantly he loved the Corinthians, the less they loved him in return. John Mark abandoned him on his first missionary journey. Barnabas didn't seem as bothered. As Paul was by that fact, Paul was being persecuted by the Jews at every turn. Some ministers of the gospel, when Paul was in prison, were trying to cause him distress in his imprisonment and provoke him to jealousy. Paul had daily pressures on him of concern for all the churches. He had been in prison a number of times. He had been shipwrecked and had been whipped with 39 lashes on five occasions. My goodness, if I had been whipped with 39 lashes on five occasions, I would use that all the time. (laughs) Everyone in my life would be tired of hearing about me being whipped with 39 lashes five times. I would bring it up in every apology, (laughs) in every confession. Hey, I'm sorry I was uptight with you today, but after all... (laughs) I don't know if I told you, but uh, I was whipped with 39 lashes five times, five times. You ever been whipped with 39 lashes? No, so you can't relate to what I'm going through. And I'm sorry that I'm not handling that so well. You look at everything Paul went through, we would be using that, wouldn't we? And yet, amazingly, in Paul's confessions of his sin in Romans 7, 14 through 25, there's not one whiff of any of those external provocations anywhere. Paul only looks within himself to explain his sin. That's amazing. Paul is like the tax collector in Luke who comes to God in brokenness and repentance and says, literally in the Greek, God be merciful to me, the sinner. The tax collector is confessing his sins to God as if he's the only sinner on the planet. To appreciate how remarkable what the tax collector does in referring to himself as the sinner, imagine a scenario in which I am downstairs in my house when my kids were younger and I hear two of my kids fighting in their room upstairs and I run upstairs and burst into the room and say, what's going on? Who started this? What's the normal response? Right. The normal response is for both of them to point the finger at the other. But imagine, fantasize for a moment, and imagine... (laughs) That I asked that question, and one of my kids steps toward me and says, Dad, upon careful reflection, <laughs> I realize that I am the sinner here. Imagine that. That would be astounding, but that's exactly what the tax collector does, and that's exactly what Paul does in the second half of Romans 7. Evidently, the only sinner Paul wants to talk about in Romans 7 is himself. The only sins he wants to talk about are his. This is so helpful for us because we are, as I said at the outset, we're naturally gifted. All of us come, we're born gifted at confessing the sins of other people. I can't tell you how many times a married couple has been in my office and I've said what's the problem and both of them open their mouths and do a phenomenal job of confessing the other person's sins I've done the same thing in my own marriage but Paul's example teaches us to own our sin and confess it and to point the finger nowhere but to ourselves do you see that in this passage I've actually heard some interpreters of Romans 7 who criticize Paul in the second half of this chapter for using too much of the first person pronouns, I, my, and me. They say there's too much me in these verses. In my opinion, that's one of the greatest beauties of these verses. Our problem, my problem, is that our confessions of sin feature too little of I, my, and me and too much of you and he and she and this and that as we are supposedly confessing our sins. When you sin, confess your sin as sin, and confess it as coming from within yourself, there's actually something liberating about doing that and fully owning your sin. We fear doing that, but there's actually something empowering about doing this, and it positions us to experience the grace of God more fully. There is a need for balance here, though, and this brings us to the fifth lesson that we can learn about confession in the second half of Romans 7, and that is our confessions of sin should embody a recognition that our sin is not the full truth of who we are. Our confessions of sin should embody a recognition That our sin is not the full truth of who we are. If you read this passage carefully, you will notice that Paul is not only confessing his sins here. He's also, if you read carefully, you'll notice he's confessing other things about himself. Look at this. In these verses, Paul confesses that he genuinely wants to do what's right. He confesses that he hates the sin that he is committing. He confesses that he agrees with the law and confesses that it is good. He confesses that he joyfully concurs with the law of God. This text is not just about confessing sin. Paul is not just confessing the truth that he has sinned. He is also confessing that other things are true about him other than his sin. Paul does not let his failures and sins lead him to say, I guess I don't really hate sin after all. I guess I don't really want to do good after all. I guess I don't really joyfully concur with the law of God after all. Paul doesn't do that. Paul refuses to let his sins remove from his consciousness the other things that are true about him, good things that are evidences of God's grace in his life. And that, that brings us to an important balance that we need to ponder here. Yes, our sins serve as manifestations of the indwelling evil within us, and we should confess that fact. However, we must make sure that our confessions embody a recognition that our sin is not the full truth of who we are. In fact, notice how Paul confesses to a distinction between himself and his sin. In verse 17, he says, So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. In verse 20, he says, If I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now, if these two statements were the only things that Paul said then there would be something wrong with his confession, right? Imagine sinning against your wife, man, and then saying, honey, I didn't really do that. Uh, The sin that dwells in me did that. So on behalf of the sin that dwells in me, I apologize for what the sin in me did. But don't be mad at me. That wouldn't go over well, would it? What makes these two disclaimers from Paul work is that they're found in the context of explicit and repeated confessions in which Paul is admitting that he is the one who is sinning. But through these disclaimers, Paul is saying, yes, I have sin that operates within me, And yes, this sinful part of me has manifested itself in my sinful actions that I have committed. But these sinful actions and even the sin which indwells me are not the full truth of who I am. This is so important because this counters a huge lie of the evil one. After we sin, the devil often points to our sin and says, this is who you are. And this is who you will forever be. And I'm sure the devil whispered the same lie in Paul's ear, but Paul isn't buying it. I love the fact that Paul is so gut-wrenchingly honest in confessing his sin and owning it as coming from within himself, while at the same time he refuses to let his sin own him. He steps away from the very sins that he has committed the very sins he has confessed to, and he says, yet not I, this is not who I am, and I will not let these sins define me. This leads us to one final lesson that we can learn about confession of sin, and this brings us to our final point, and that is that our confessions of sin should always conclude with turning to Jesus, turning to Jesus Christ and confessing gospel truth. We've most of us have heard this, that according to the basic etymology of the word for that is translated confess in the New Testament, the to confess literally means to say the same thing that God says about our sin, right? Most of us have heard that. And that's true. And we all usually hear that and say uh, yeah, I, I, I need to say the same thing God says about my sin. And so that means I need to call my sin, sin. Sin is horrible and disgusting. And I am wretched because of what I have done. So there you go. I just said the same thing God says about my sin. I've confessed. Well, confession does involve speaking with unflinching honesty about the awfulness of your sin. And what your sin says about the depravity that is inside of you. But guys, think about it. Is that all that God says about your sin? Consider other things God has said about your sin. God says your sin is forgivable. How about confessing that? God says that Jesus provided atonement for your sins. God says that he will deliver you even from the presence of sin in a future day. God tells you that you are free from sin's power and sin's guilt and that sin is no longer your master. So if you're going to come to God and confess and say the same thing God says about your sin, why not say those things too? If you want your confession to be complete, then say everything about your sin, including the gospel things that God says about your sin. When you confess, that's exactly what Paul does near the end of chapter 7. In verse 24, Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Paul's not asking this question because he doesn't know the answer. He's he's asking this question because he wants to give the answer, because he's not done confessing. He now wants to confess gospel truth. And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, Paul is saying, God will deliver me and he will deliver me through Jesus Christ who is my Lord. And I'm confessing that out loud. Then look what he continues to confess in Romans 8. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guys, Paul is still confessing here. Only now he's confessing gospel truth. He's saying, In the here and now, there is no condemnation because I am in Christ Jesus, even though I still find myself sinning. He goes on to say, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What I've done in my Bible is I've put hyphens between sin and the word and and the word and and the word death to make it as if it's one word. It's the law, it's not the law of sin and the law of death. It's the law of sin and death. Think of that as one word. God, through Christ, has delivered us from the law of sin and death. In other words, from the singular law that demands that where there is sin, the wage for that sin is eternal separation from God. That's the law. Death and sin were always together, but Christ came in between sin and death, and he bore that death for us, so that now we are delivered from the law of sin and death. Paul goes on, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, there's the word sin, he's still making confessions about his sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Paul is saying at the cross, my sin got condemned in the flesh of Jesus with the result that I am now free from the condemnation that I deserve. And Paul continues on from there throughout the length of Romans 8. And he builds to a mighty crescendo of gospel confessions in the final verses of Romans 8 to such a degree that John Calvin suggests that by the time Paul gets to the final 11 or so verses of Romans 8, he is in a state of spiritual ecstasy. He's bold in those final verses. He's confident. And he even starts talking smack against anyone that would lay any charge against him (laughs) or try to condemn him. And he speaks of himself as an overwhelming conqueror through him who... Loves us. Here's what we learn from Paul's example. When we confess our sins on the other side of failure, let's confess the full truth about our sins, the gospel truth about our sins and about ourselves in Christ. This will leave us in a place of gratitude and celebration for the deliverance that is ours, the love that is ours, and it'll leave us ready to spring. From the depths of repentance into the heights of joy that Paul expresses in the last several verses of Romans 8. Think about it this way Romans 8 is not Paul moving on to another topic. Romans 8 contains the gospel confessions that Paul uttered when he found himself inside of Romans 7 kind of moments. This is what Paul said to himself as he preached the gospel to himself and spoke gospel confessions on the other side of his sin. Paul doesn't finish uttering confessions with regard to his sin at the end of Romans 7. Romans 8 is a continuation of his confessions with regard to his sins. Only now his confessions have morphed into gospel confessions. Paul's example teaches us that our confessions of sin should always culminate in gospel confessions, always. When you look at the full picture that we've just seen of confession, what is not to love about confessing your sin? It's a wonderful thing. I have on the last page of your notes just... uh, something entitled Ways That Sin Wins and Loses, and it helps us to maybe crystallize what we've learned in our time together this morning. Listen to this. If I sin and then deny it, sin wins. If I sin and then call my sin good, sin wins. If I sin and then minimize the evil of it, sin wins. If I sin and blame others, sin wins. If I sin and blame my circumstances, sin wins. If I sin and then say this is who I am and who I forever will be, sin wins. But if, having sinned, I confess my sin as wholly mine and no one else's, if I flee to the cross and bathe in Christ's atoning blood, if I confess at the cross that my sin is condemned and I am justified. And if I hearken to my Savior's voice which says, you are free, then is my sin defeated and Christ glorified. And then I've succeeded in confessing my way to joy. Guys, cherish the opportunity to confess your sins to God As I said at the outset, confession of sin is not some necessary evil like a root canal that you've got to do because you've blown it. Confession is a beautiful thing. It's a delicious thing that we now get to do now that we are saved. So confess your heart away on the other side of failure. Confess swiftly and deeply and boldly and truly knowing that you are wrapped in the Father's embrace while you confess. And cherish the victory that confession is. Most people who are confessing their sins to God and even to others are doing so, hoping that there will be victory that follows. Little do they realize that it's already a victory that they are confessing their sins to God. And to others. In fact, a person who is truly and humbly and biblically and boldly confessing their sins to God and to others is one of God's mightiest signs and wonders. It's among his greatest miracles. So when you are broken over your sin and confessing your sins to God and to others, enjoy the fact that you are already God's miracle and know that God is pleasured to forgive you. And lavish His grace on you. And you know what? You may realize in the process of facing your sins squarely that you may need to confess some sins to other people. And there may be hurt and anger and some pretty tough sledding for a while. There may be consequences of what you go and confess to a spouse or to others that you have wronged. But that's okay. You can face all of that with courage, knowing that you are secure in God's grace and knowing that God will even use that pain and whatever consequences that follow, He will subjugate that pain and that trial and force that pain and those consequences to pay tribute to you and do good to you and do in you much good And bring about growth in you. And glorify himself in you. And that's why we can always say that when we confess our sins in the proper way, we are confessing our way to joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, would to God that we as Christians, that the gospel would make us radically humble, radically broken, radically repentant, radically militant against our own personal sins. And yes, we need to speak against the sins that prevail in our culture today, but may we be more known for confessing our own sins than we are about confessing the sins of others. And may we repent and confess with such boldness and with such courage that the world looks at us and says, where where do you get the courage to do that? And then we have an opportunity to explain to them where our courage comes from, and that is from grace through Jesus Christ found in the gospel. God, help us to live these things out. And thereby glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said. Copyright 2016 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.